uh, whether it's done through law or whether it's done through um, just recognizing how much we depended upon, you know, oh yeah, those, that restaurant, my favorite restaurant, man, I love going down there and having that cut of, you know, steak every other Friday because that was my place and now, oh God, they're gone and oh, the waiters, they've moved on. They're not even in Birmingham anymore. Like whatever thing is happening, we realize, oh, I actually needed people to fulfill that thing that I wanted and got so much. I got it so much. I got it so much that it didn't even matter. Those people were just, they were just trappings. And now those people are gone. I don't know where they are. Um, but all of a sudden we're like kind of getting face to face with all this stuff. This, 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 Let's be honest. Talking about our faith, it can get hard sometimes. Sometimes we get caught up in the world. But now, the world will have to get caught up in us. We're here to talk about it. We're here to talk about our real faith. We're here to talk about the real God. For unapologetic apologetics everywhere, welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. Welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. I'm Matt Burford, and we have a special guest today. We've got two special guests. Of course, Travis, Dr. Travis, has his own podcast. And here, now that it's quarantine, we've just decided to kind of uh, man our efforts together and, and start reaching out to people that we know uh, that are thinking about deep questions and are not only thinking about it, but are practitioners uh, in the field by which they're, they're talking and thinking about. Um, and today, me and Travis uh, have a really special guest. His name is Pratt, Brad Acton. Act, tell me the last name. Acton, you're pretty good. Acton. Brad Acton today. And today we're going to talk about economics and not just specifically economics, but the question of now that we're in quarantine, and it looks like right now the, we're, we're at the peak or the end of the peak in some places. New York, of course, has just been a, it's been a, it's been a horrible thing over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we've seen and we've experienced some really interesting things uh, while in quarantine, some horrific. And in doing so, all of us have had a chance to think and deal with questions that might come up when it comes to this pandemic. Um, and these are questions probably the Christian church has had to grapple with uh, for the last 2,000 years. But one of the things me and Travis were talking about the last couple of days was the, not just the economic impact, but this very interesting kind of ethical question about um, what do we do when it comes to saving lives and also possibly tanking the economy? Uh, it seems like a two-horned dilemma that's in front of us that's kind of difficult. Uh, so Brad's, uh, Brad, uh, Travis said, I got a guy that we could talk about this that's trained not only in theology, but works in the field of finance. Uh, he, of course, went to Auburn, got his undergrad there, and then went to Duke University to get his MDiv. And now you're, uh, what do you call yourself, a financial expert? Uh, I wouldn't say an expert, just financial planner. A financial planner with who? Uh, Merrill Lynch. With Merrill Lynch. How long have you been with Merrill Lynch? Uh, almost five years. Almost five years. Wow. So let me just, just get right to it. Uh, tell me what, what the economy is to you. What is define economy for me? And also how, how do Christians think about the word economy? I think it probably has a lot to do with where you're coming from. When I used to think of the word economy, I thought very dry, sterile interactions of numbers, products, services, goods. It was, it was something non-emotional, non, non, uh, um, non-human. It was something that was scientific. And then I guess in what I do now, uh, economics is the study of people. It's the study of behavior. It's the study of moods. It's the study of emotions. It's the study of needs and wants and desires overlaid with an amazing system of production and, and, uh, acquisition and purchases and sales. It's a, uh, and it's fluid and it's a very living thing. Um, so um, I think for Christians, uh, maybe people think of it as something that's just scientific, but I think it's much deeper than that. I think, and we all participate in it every single day from everything we think about, want, desire, uh, things that are marketed to us. We're all participating in this economy. Yeah, that's interesting because when it comes to most of us who reflect on economy, we don't think about it in terms of the specifics, right? We leave that to people like you or, or others that we consider like either math geeks or statistic geeks. Um, but we don't reflect enough about our place 
in terms of managing scarcity and resources and the philosophies that we uh, needed to support as we deal out those resources among us all. Uh, but do you think that this is something that even the early church dealt with in terms of thinking oh, yeah, about the economy? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And I think, I, I think Travis would be much more well-equipped to speak to what some of those thinkers actually said and did in their productions and writings about this very topic. But um, I think the question of resources and how those resources go about demonstrating the Christian ethic was at the forefront of a lot of what was going on, even in the New Testament. Um, so what, give me one thing about a, the, the, your job that you really do enjoy uh, that you think Christians could, could take, I guess they could take and reflect on. It may be something they don't think about when it comes to financial issues, economic issues. Um, I think the thing that I enjoy most about my job is removing fear from people's thoughts about their money and their futures and to free them up to do things with that money that gives them life and gives people around them life. Um, and that's, that's probably at the cornerstone of what I get to do that I enjoy more than anything else. No, so is there a theology of economy or economics? Oh, absolutely. Ooh, that's that's I mean, interesting. The, so, the, the, what's the, what's the well-written line that Jesus taught more about money than anything else, <laughs> at least in the gospels. I mean, Jesus knew that money was a part of everything. It was a part of what we feared. It was a part of what we, uh, where our hearts were. It was a part of who we loved. It was a part of who we hated. What we do with money is not just, oh, I think I'm going to buy that widget. It's no, it's going to, this money is going to fulfill a piece of me by where I put it today. And it's going to fulfill a piece of me where I put it tomorrow or who I give it to tomorrow. Um, it's directly tied to who each one of us is as a person. And by following our money, we can learn more about ourselves than almost anything else we do in our life. Um, it's pretty incredible. I never thought about that before. For somebody in your position, you can really kind of help people think, not only navigate and, and help their money, you know, produce more for them, but you could, you can actually are at a really great place to help them think about their, their money theologically, uh, how to alleviate stress and fear. And not just, I w I'm assuming not just the fear of not having money, but the fear of probably not knowing how to manage their money. Uh, when I was at a, I was at a church that I was a minister of in Montgomery and we went through some projects before of, helping people, especially older people, think about their money in terms of their will and where, where are they going to leave their money. Um, and you think about the, the Financial Peace University that, that, that Dave Ramsey does where he goes through and helps churches think about their money. Um, but maybe, is, maybe, are we too shallow when it comes to thinking about the use of our money? Maybe we don't think big enough in terms of money's place in our life. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think we're limited by our imagination. And uh, we, think, we think what we do with our money is something that we came up with when, we, when our eyes snapped open in the morning and we lived our day and we bought the coffee and we went to the grocery store. But we're all being told how to spend our money and, and how to think about where we spend our money. I mean, we're, our imagination for what we do with our money is crafted and sculpted by a thousand outside voices every single day. And so to have a different imagination for, well, what can I do with my money? Um, we need other voices in that mix besides what, you know, the typical bombardment we get, whether it's on TV or whether it's on the radio or billboards that fly by us, or even what our friends are wearing or what they're not wearing or, um, you know, the toys they buy. I mean, everything we see around us is telling us what to do with our money. And then something radical comes along perhaps and teaches us, oh, there's a different way to treat money, which I think is a lot of what Jesus did. Um, he showed somebody, he showed everybody that there were different things to do with our resources. Yeah. And not just money, but we're stewards of, like you just said, our resources. And, and even the, 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 the top 10 kind of boiled down laws that we get from the Old Testament. I mean, what do we learn? We learn we, we don't have to, we, we can't steal other things from people uh, and we can't covet from other things from people. So apparently ownership is a, is a big idea in scripture and, and the yeah. fact that you are, you have been given an ownership of certain resources and they're your job to manage those things seem to be a pretty big concept in scripture. 
Hey, Travis, uh, come in for a second and, and help us try to find this place where economics and theology and maybe ethics come together. Well, that's, that's a lot to ask. Uh, but I mean, I think, I think when we normally think about money, uh, I know that my, my natural tendency is to be very critical of the idea of money. And um, we all want money. But I think when we start thinking ethics, we automatically start thinking money is a bad thing. And money's bad, money's bad, money's bad. The collection of money is bad. You think of the person uh, building up, uh, building more barns uh, to store more goods. And it seems like that's, um, that's, that's the way that we look at money. We don't, um, and I bring this up with my students a lot about, uh, I just kind of note that, you know, money is a way of, of storing your labor, of storing uh, what you've given, what you've done, so that you can hand it over to someone else. Um, and so uh, I guess the, the, the issue, the issue I'd be thinking about is where, where is it, um, where is, how is, how is, what is the right approach to money and what is the sinful approach to money? Um, how do we measure its value? Because this is, this is one of the questions I really want to get to because because the, 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 one of the debates that keeps coming up over and over again, and one of the things it keeps talking about is what, you know, uh, we can go back to Trump's statement that we don't want the cure to be worse than the, worse than the problem. And so how, how uh, shutting down the economy, could this throw us into a Great Depression? Is that a bad thing? Maybe we should start seeking a simpler lifestyle. Maybe we shouldn't be in such a hot pursuit of money. Uh, and money's already bad anyway. And what we should do is be caring for our neighbor. And so, so you see this big clash, this big, big, uh, mess. So the, the question I have, and this isn't answering your question, this is causing more, more trouble, is what, is what is the Christian, what should be the Christian approach to money? What should be our attitude toward money? Because Jesus did talk about money a lot, and he said things like, it's hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, it's easier to squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle, um, which is troublesome because, you know, we in the United States, even the relatively poor among us are rich. And so what is, um, what is the right attitude we're to have toward our money? Um, and, and really what the question I'm trying to get to, I really wanna to get to is how do you measure the value of the economy or the, and again, economy is, I, I like the way you talked about economy. How do we measure the value of the economy against the value of human life? I mean, that's sort of the question that's being brought up, right? Um, I, I don't even know how, how, do, how do we understand the value of human life? What is the value? And, and the way people want to put it is something like money versus my grandma's life or money versus my child's or money versus my life. And obviously life wins out because life is priceless. So how is the Christian to approach the idea of money, the idea of economy and and I mean, how much the, how much GDP is a human life worth? Hmm. <laughs> you, know, so, you know, in the abstract, that sounds that sounds atrocious. I feel like I should be put up against Shannara on the on the billboards. <laughs> um, Man. But but how, how do we understand the Christian approach to money? The Christian approach to, to how we how we value this sort of thing, and how can I decide? when it's okay to, or maybe how, how excited or how uh, much should we push toward the, re, so, the so-called reopening of the economy, uh, whatever that means. That's a complicated idea right there, uh, versus the, the dangers of this, of this epidemic. So I asked Travis a complicated question, and it sounds like Travis is asking you a complicated question, Brad. It's a vicious circle of nothing but questions. Uh, but well, maybe, I love hearing Travis's mind at work. It's a it's a dangerous playground, but it's a, it's amazing to hear. Yeah, it's a squirrel. Well, over let me let, let me let me make let me make a comment because because what you talked about with the economy, I love the way that you described it. Is that the economy is not some abstract thing where we're worried about stock market issues. Right. I mean, if I just want my uh, if I just want my stock value to grow, you know, that's sort of cold. But at the economy is human activity. It's it's the purpose that, that gives people life. When people stop, uh, particularly, I think men when they lose jobs and they become unemployed, it, it increases their their 
increases dramatically the chance for suicide. Um, all of these sorts of things are a part of it because it gives us purpose. It gives us a sense that I'm producing something of value and the world is responding by giving me something of value. And so that's a sign that I've done something that matters is when the world responds by giving me something of value. It's a declaration that you matter. And so when you take that away from me and you simply start, maybe, maybe I keep getting government bailouts or whatever, it's, I'm, I'm still not producing anything of value. It's like getting a participation trophy for showing up, even though you've been on the bench the whole time. So the economy is this human activity, desires, emotions, wants, needs, all of these things that, that you brought up. Um, how do we measure that? Is, that, is, that a, is it more reasonable to measure that against the value of human life and to understand it that way? Hey, before we get there, though, Brad, uh, center on this idea of fear, uh, especially when it comes to those that come into your office. When we get to maybe when we when we think about why we shouldn't shouldn't fear um, our financial situation, uh, tell me how does fear play and how shouldn't it play in the Christian life when it comes to money? Yeah, I think the fear is at the backdrop of this entire conversation and what's happening around us because there's two pieces of this. I mean, one's a very individual ethic when it comes to how we handle money, and then one's a communal ethic. And the communal ethic's kind of been thrust upon us by the powers that be that are saying that, you know, the ethic of the time is for us to all shelter in place, to do what we're doing for the sake of saving lives. And we're all giving up or our money and our incomes being taken from us for some greater good all of a sudden. Um, and that is, is a, are two separate things. So uh, on the individual side, man, fear, I think so in, in a non-quarantine world, in a non COVID-19 world, the fear, I think you even mentioned this, Matt, fear is, uh, it's kind of, it's simplified. It's like, oh, fear of running out of money, but people really don't even know what that means. And I've, I've been doing this now for, like I said, almost five years. I've never met a single person in my entire career, both now and when I used to work in a bank where someone was at peace because they had money um, or someone was in ruins because they had less. Um, I've yet to meet that person. I've met wealthy men and women who are absolutely uh, devastated with their life and where they are. And I've met people who have much less money who are happier than anybody I've ever met because of their outlook on, on different pieces of their life and, and what is of value. Um, that ties a little bit to what Travis was talking about. Um, so going back to the fear thing in this environment, um, the fear of the, the long-term effects, of what this means for our money, what this means for our economy, I think is still starting to kind of get into the ground a little bit. Like the seeds are just starting to sprout because we really don't, we don't know what that means yet. The stock market crashed less than a month ago and it was based purely off of projections of what the, the economy might look like on the other side. It, nothing had actually happened yet, right? I mean, the virus was spreading, oh, market collapse. Well, it's not because all the companies went under yet. It's because a lot of bad stuff was happening. And so the market reacts, right? People react and fear and bad things happen. I think the economic fruit of this is going to be coming out for months, right? When we get numbers next month and then the following month and the next quarter and then, and then the, you know, the subsequent quarter, we're going to start either thinking, oh my gosh, it's just as bad as we thought or oh my gosh, it was much worse than we ever imagined. And then we could see the market go through its crash again, who knows? Um, so there's a lot of things left to work out in this and fear is something that is always going to be on the table. Um, it might be a, another thing to talk about what, what to do with that or what the Christian response to fear is. That's another question, but um, as Christians, I'll just simply say fear, if we're going to fight anything or have, an, or have a narrative against anything is this, as the church or as believers, it has got to be with never allowing fear to be anywhere close to the foundation of our conversation. Because fear is an indicator that we've lost sight of love, of hope, of faith, um, and, it, and we, be, we turn base, it's natural, it's instinctive, it's uh, mistrustful. It, I mean, it breeds all types of things that the Christian uh, ethic just can't interact with or it loses what it is. Yeah, that's, I, uh, I've, I've always, whenever I'm talking about, uh, anyway, so when, when, when uh, if you look at the difference between, this sounds unrelated, but when you look at the difference between a horror movie and a movie with heroes, the primary difference is, in a horror movie, 
everybody in their fear is running off to do their own, is they're, simp they're simply trying to protect themselves. And their mind, they're, 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 they get this tunnel vision, this, sh this shrunken view of the world where it's about protecting myself from injury. And then everyone kind of goes off and does their own thing. For some reason, they always split up. And then, and then they all kind of get picked off. In a heroic movie, you can have the exact same kind of villain or monster, but you have one or more people who's perp who are filled with purpose in, in saving and protecting others. And so the, uh, when, I, when I think about fear, I'm always thinking about how fear drives us apart and how I can look at this and say, the economy is going down, it's going to hurt my, my prospects, or the epidemic is spreading, it's going to hurt me, instead of looking at it as, given the circumstances, what, are, what, are we, what can we as the church do? What can I, as an individual believer, do uh, to help? I really, anyway, I'm just saying I really like that, uh, I like that perspective. I think it's really important. Because the fear is a lack of security, right? Fear is what what is the future what does the future hold for me and my family and my finances and the stuff that I have? I'm, I'm I'm trying to figure out a way to keep my stuff and at least generate more stuff. Uh, uh, is that the correct or incorrect way to look at it? I think that's how. I mean, I think all three of us are fathers. It sounds like like we. I mean, you can press in just a little bit and this gets really personal. Whereas the second, the livelihood of my spouse and my children are on the table. Um, who knows what kind of man I become? I don't know. Mm. Like I'm, I'm sitting in a house. I'm safe. Like I, my children are asleep upstairs. I have food in the pantry. Um, I still have income. Thank God. Like that goes away. I have no idea what kind of man I become. I pray I, I stay a good man and a faithful man, but there's people out there that are facing this reality right now and they might get that government check in one to three weeks and then what? And so um, I think those are the people, I mean, at the front lines of what we're doing and the front lines of Christians that are losing their job and their income. Um, there's different solutions to that. I think and the churches should be a part of that, but um, it's an opportunity. Like Travis just said, I mean, they're in the horror movie. And so what are you going to do? Are you going to run and try to fight for yourself and, ultimately lay curses at your kid's feet? Are you going to be a different kind of man and bless your children and your family by what you live in front of them? Um, but that's a decision that you got to face. Like only I can't speak to those people or what's happening. And then if maybe one day if I get there, I'll find out exactly how, what I do. But um, there, these people are the ones living it out right now and facing that decision in the church around the world, not just America. Wow. So let's let's help let's help each other out here. When it when it comes to thinking about the issue of reopening the economy, now that we've looked at maybe some common threads when it comes to thinking about this issue and, and perceiving this issue as a Christian, now comes the brass tacks of opening up the economy again at the cost of lives, like Travis said. Travis, how do we go? Before we start really thinking about that issue and helping the church think about that issue, what are some things we need to get straightened out first? Uh, you're always a big person. You're always big proponent on getting your definitions right, getting thinking about your assumptions before you even tackle a question. So before we even talk about the ethical dilemma that's before us, which is what you noticed, what you have said before, which is lives versus the economy. Uh, what are some things that we need to set up first before we we get to that question. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that, that's, that's part of what I'm trying to pick out a little bit. I mean, to, to, we started off with trying to define what the economy is. And I think that's really important because when we look at it in the abstract, uh, particularly those, those of us who might be fairly safe from the issues, who maybe have a little bit of money in the bank, have a little bit of, maybe we have the kind of jobs where we can work from home, and uh, the kinds of essential jobs that, that keep producing money or whatever, um, or we're part of the media where we make money off of apocalyptic predictions and, and uh, partisanship and so forth. Um, we, can, we, can, uh, you know, we can keep making money and we're still fine. And when people bring up the idea of the economy uh, going down, we're thinking, you know, I'm going to have to sacrifice uh, one of my $100 plate eating out for the week sort of things, maybe because the economy went down. 
but we're not, we're not recognizing that there's, that there's entire families that will be devastated. There's people who have lost kind of the goal and purpose in life and maybe they can never recover from it. Uh, but we're fairly safe. And so uh, when we talk about eco economy, I, I, I like the recognition that it is a lot more than just money because money we can describe as evil, even though it's not evil when I have it. It's, but it is evil when other people care about it. Um, instead, we recognize that it, it is all the things that we do. It relates to purpose and desire and so on and so forth. Taking care of one's children um, is probably one of the, that, that's the thing that, that scares me the most about the whole thing too is, I mean, if I'm out starving to death, that would be terrible. It'd be worse to watch it happen to my children. Um, I mean, not saying we're going to go that far, but uh, we've got a lot of old neighbors that probably couldn't get away from us if we were really hungry. So that's a joke. Probably need to edit that out. Um, but uh, I've seen that movie, I think. <laughs> so, but uh, so, but the the other side is how do we? And this is the tricky side that that you, we need probably expertise in another area. But how do we how do we evaluate the risk? And not only that, but what what is the? Can, are we capable of? Is there a value, is there a way to translate the value of the economy to a person, to the value, uh, to the value, uh, the negative value of risk to a human life? And so it seems like those are, those could be considered incommensurate. And so we're, we're trying to find a way to make, I mean, can you put a, can you put a dollar sign next to a person's life? Well, no, you can't, but we do all the time. Um, uh, can you can you put uh, it, it depends on how we perceive money and what it's doing in our lives. If I am a person who's sim whose goal is simply to, to get as much money as I can, then putting a dollar sign next to another person's life is terrible. If I'm a person who's trying to take care of my children, then we, the, the, the value of the money and the value of the job becomes to come closer to another person's to a person's life. I know that sounds terrible because to put a money, to put a dollar value on a person's life sounds terrible, but a dollar value isn't just, I have more money and I get to retire with an RV. It's, I can't feed my children. I can't keep them in a house. I can't, I can't right. give, you know, um, and then things get a little more complicated um, because we, we, as maybe I should put it this way. If we, we in, in heroic situations, the hero, in fact, puts a value on their own life in, in the protection of, of other people. They, 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 they are willing to put, they're willing to put a, create a risk in order to trade. And I'm not saying all, all the, particularly all those who are susceptible to this, that they should risk their lives so that I can have more money. That's, that sounds cold and callous. Um, but it seems like one of the things we need to bring up is the value of the human life. And then, then base that off of how much risk there is or something like that. But I think there's a third element uh, that that's been noted that we haven't um, that, that that we kind of touched on that kind of needs to be brought up, and that is something like um, the, the idea of the common good. And so, uh, and I'm not sure if if we in the in the United States we have brief moments of a sense of common good, right? So September 12th, 2001, we had a sense of common good, and then by the 13th, we all hated each other again. But um, we saw the other person as the enemy against whom I, I'm, I must take, if I'm going to have some, I have to take from that person, right? That's generally kind of how we, we have this, we have this real tension that's going on. And you could imagine, like, one of the things that struck me when, when, when the epidemic started to become serious is, is all of the particularly young people who went on spring break and hung out at bars and the sense of just utter selfishness that came out in that, it kind of makes you like, well, you know, the only way we can solve this problem is if we get the military and the police out on the streets and start pointing guns at people because nobody has a sense of the common good. So for, therefore the law must come in and clamp down. But what would it mean if we started truly caring for the people around us? Could we, in a sense, tentatively open things up and allow people to act? You know, people stop hoarding the toilet paper and stop hoarding the N95 masks and so on and so forth what would it mean for us to, to live in a world where we were truly concerned for the person next to us and not just for ourselves, because we had a sense that we're in this together, hmm. um, which is more of a heroic perspective 
than a than a horror movie individualistic perspective. So, I mean, that's sort of a, a collection of things. Um, what what is an econ- What is the economy? What is how do you measure the risk to risk of a human life? Um, and what would it mean for us to act in a way that um, maybe it's kind of a, 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 a an issue that's further down the line, but what is the relationship of the government in, in controlling our activities, given that we're not acting for the common good? So again, I don't know if I'm answering any kind of questions, but I feel like these are some of the things that need to be clarified because it feels, maybe a third one, or maybe a fourth one, I should say. How much would it be acceptable for us to take a reduced way of, reduced way of living? Like, is it perhaps, could, could we not live, if we, if we were to hit a depression in the United States, would it be the same as the depression a century ago? Or would it be like the Great Depression? Or would it be, you know, I have to work an extra year before I retire hmm. and I can't have my fourth car. I mean, is it that level of depression? Like I can only have three cars now instead of four and I got to work till I'm 66 instead of 65 or whatever. You know, or is it we're, we're, you know, we're Venezuelan, we're digging food out of the trash. Um, uh, maybe, maybe this, maybe we should reduce our, the, how much consumption we have and start living a simpler lifestyle. Um, again, I, I'm just full of questions. I don't, I don't have the answers. I'm just, I just have a, a ton of questions and I'm ready for someone to give me the right answer. I think one thing me and my wife talked about early on was how, like, um, you know, you're right. We're, we're such an individualistic society. We we all have my wants, my needs, my things I want to do. And then all of a sudden this thing happens and it's like a reminder. Oh, no, actually, you're in a community. Okay, so what does that mean? Um, and then you realize that the illusion of how individual we are is just that. It's just an illusion. Like, we depend utterly on the well-being of other people to work, to live to do what we want to do. And we might like to think that we are above certain people and maybe we know that we are quote below certain people in the pecking order. But uh, at the end of the day, we drastically, utterly, uh, I mean, uh, excruciatingly need one another. And this whole situation, uh, whether it's done through law or whether it's done through um, just recognizing how much we depended upon you know, oh yeah, those, that restaurant, my favorite restaurant, man, I love going down there and having that cut of, you know, steak every other Friday. Cause that was my place. And now, oh God, they're gone. And oh, the waiters, they've moved on. They're not even in Birmingham anymore. Like whatever thing is happening, we realize, oh, I actually needed people to fulfill that thing that I wanted and got so much. I got it so much. I got it so much that it didn't even matter. Those people were just, they were just trappings. And now those people are gone. I don't know where they are, um, but all of a sudden we're like kind of getting face to face with all this stuff. Um, so I think that's an incredible, incredibly important point. It's all getting up to us. And then your other question, Trey, I think about like the uh, call it the economy of risk, right? Like the government responded to a threat, and they did it as simply as possible by just telling everybody to stay home. It wasn't really thought out. It wasn't very even scientific. It was just kind of like, uh, okay, we think it'll be, you know, it's a virus. It transmits by other, you know, with other people. So all of you just stay home and don't interact with other people. And that, and that might slow this thing down. And so here we sit, right, at home. And it looks like it may be working and slowing things down. Okay, that's all well and good. Um, but it wasn't like this well thought out, crafted thing about common good and, and ethics. It was just a, oh God, panic. We have this thing could be much worse than any of us think it is. Everybody stay home. Well, the assumption is that, okay, less people dying equals greater good and not shutting down health industries and overwhelming our doctors and our emergency services equals greater good. Okay. Well, what about like uh, the, the lives of those who are put in, in risks path in, in death's path because of this thing, right? nurses and doctors and and all the services and people that live and function around that entire localized economy of healthcare are now being put front and center 
in something that is exposing them to risk. But we expect them to shoulder that risk. We expect them to go out there and be on the front lines and face it because that's their duty and good and proper and they're being paid, some of them, lots of money to do it. And we just kind of ex expect it. Um, but like, what about the decision to reopen the economy? Um, we, the illusion, again, the illusion that we're somehow like going to cause death by reopening the economy, like we're going to cause death by causing millions of people to drive to work again. We're going to cause death by having millions of men and women and some teenagers uh, commit suicide because they go back into the, the stress of the work world and all that. There is no decision that we make as a community that is free from the threat and power of death. Now, the church has a really remarkable way to speak to that that has everything to do with who Jesus is and what he, what he put in front of us and he kind of just takes us by the face and directs us back to him and says, everything you are chasing with your arms outstretched, whether that's money or goods and services, or, or, even, or even my, quote, spiritual promises of the, the good things I do for you, like resurrection and all these things, you think you're chasing after those, those things, but really all you're desperately looking for is me. And if you don't look for me in this or in your work, or in your family, or in your drive to work, or in the pandemic, or in the hospital, it's always going to lead to death. And that's not to me, that's not up to me or anybody to tell somebody, hey, you're missing out on the point, you know, look at your life. It's just, people will know their own fruit. People will know their own fruit. I don't need to tell a rich man who's dead inside that he's miserable, right? I don't need to tell him that. He knows he is. He's desperately miserable. I can show him a way to peace, maybe, and for him to have life, and then he tastes the fruit and realizes there's a different way, uh, or the church to respond to the pandemic in a different way than to only be cap keep capital, uh, captivated by how do we avoid death at all costs? How do we avoid death at all costs? Mm. Well, we can't. We're not supposed to. But we can face it, and we can live in a posture of love to where we go into death and we and we, you know, and whatever this means as far as the economy and everything in between. It's too big for me. I can't, it is way too big for me. I can't figure the economy out. I don't know what the right thing is to reopen or not reopen it. I have no idea what the right reaction is with people with COVID-19. Um, but Jesus seemed to, to go right up alongside lepers, right? You know, which I think is like the closest thing to social distancing you see in the New Testament when lepers stand, they, they quote, stand far off. You know, Jesus, have mercy on us, right? They were social distancing. Um, and what did Jesus do? He went to the people that were most unclean and um, he didn't live in fear. And so I think whether it's Christians, whether we reopen the economy or we go to our work or whether we're in healthcare or whether we're in finance or whether we're unemployed or whatever we're doing, um, if God can help us to live in a posture of peace and, and in love, sacrificial, heroic love, like you're talking about Travis, then I think the world, the people will see it and it will be fruit to them that will give them life and they'll want more of it because it won't be somebody captivated by fear for the first time in a long time because they're, they're bombarded. We are all bombarded with what we should be afraid of all the time, all the time. You should be afraid of this, afraid of this, afraid of this, afraid of this. And if someone comes along a lot and says, I am not afraid and you shouldn't be afraid either. It gets people, it gets people's attention. And I think that's a powerful voice that we can speak. And it's not our voice, it's Jesus's voice. Um, but I think that's a piece of all this. Yeah, I think that's, that's really, because a lot of times the activity that you do may be the same. The kind of decisions that you make may still be the same, but how you're motivated changes, changes everything, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I fought this whole quarantine thing until someone convinced you, like, you know what, you probably statistically you'll be okay. The fear of death shouldn't be too much in you. You're, you know, 35, relatively healthy, you know, statistics say you'll be all right. But if you stay at home, you might protect people that this could actually kill. Like, oh, you know what? Okay. I will buy that. I will do, I will, I will not only do that, I will do it with a good attitude because now you have me believing that I'm keeping other people alive. So now it's an act of love to be in my house, to do this thing, even though all I do is stare at a laptop and numbers and talk to people about their money. Like, but now, okay, I'm loving people who could die from this. Um, and try to live that well in front of the kids and not be an angry, you know, claustrophobic dad right now. 
Yeah. I, and what you did was you just reframed it in terms of purpose. Like I get this sense that over and over again, particularly in, in our society, as we move toward more and more specialization, 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 you can do less and less. And it seems like constantly, you're just constantly being pushed out of the way. Listen, get out of the way and let me fix this. Get get out of the way and let the experts take care of this. And it seems like uh, the one way that you can look at the at this, you know, stay at home order and so on and so forth is look, everyone just needs to sit back, get out of the way and and stop doing stuff so that things get solved. Instead of instead of it being framed and we we frame it in terms of fear because that's what gets people to pay attention. Instead yeah. of framing it in terms of uh, I right. see some people try to frame it in terms of purpose. Um, but it's always like a condemnation. It seems like what, what's constantly con- coming up is condemnation and calls to inaction. Um, whereas the way, I mean, and I mean, this, this might be a little bit cheat. I think there is a connection here, but that, that the way of the world is condemnation and, yeah. and clamping down on action. And the way of Christ right. is always invitation to purpose. Right. That's right. The law is, the law it shouldn't be our motivator, right? As Christians, there, there's the law is to, to curve the base instinct to protect people. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it shouldn't be the church should be called to something much higher than just what the law is calling it to do. Um, and the ethic that Christ lays out, mm-hmm. it would, it, if if quarantine is the way to love neighbor, then the church should have come to that conclusion long ago and said, oh yeah, absolutely, this is how we this is how we love one another. And um, this might hurt some of us financially, and it might cause some of us to lay down a lot more than others. So let's share this burden with one another as we try to love people around us. Whereas the world is just scared to death and beaten back into their holes and said, if you come out, you're going to cause everybody to die. Like, well, that's, that's kind of disturbing, but I guess I'll stay home. <laughs> the church, you know, meanwhile, you know, we had virtual worship on Sunday, you know, we break bread. It's, it's, it's a way of life that was not there three weeks ago. Um, but it's a way of life and not just fear of death all the time. It strikes me that in, in uh, maybe there's one, one last thing for me to say, but it strikes me that that way of framing it takes all the questions that I came up with at the beginning and makes them moot. Um, how do you measure the value of a human life against the economy? Um, it's, it strikes me that there's a kind of, uh, um, let me appeal to Nietzsche, one of my favorite, um, where he says, uh, uh, he critic he, he says something like this. He says, a man can live, a man with a why can live with almost any how. Um, and then he says, you know, the opposite, kind of in other places. I don't think it's in the same place, but he says something like, you know, if you don't have a why, you can't stand anyhow. And so, <laughs> and the idea is something like, um, if, you're, if your life and, and, and your, your why can't be pleasure or whatever, it has to be a deeper purpose, something richer, something that's calling you upward. Even Nietzsche believes that. Um, and uh, uh, it seems like when we start measuring value, the value of one thing against another, a large part of what that's coming from is an attempt to try to understand, well, how, which one's going to cost me more, cost us more even. Um, but that's yeah. a, a hero, a heroic attitude of, of grand transcendent purpose doesn't really count the cost in that sort of way, right? Um, I mean, maybe that's the idea of store up treasures in heaven instead of on earth is that the kind of values that you're measuring are not the right kinds of values. And, and, and if you try to take even Christianity and measure it according to those kind of values, everything falls apart. Um, yeah. Christianity doesn't make sense in that, in that kind of value. Um, yeah. It's a call to a kind of fearlessness before death uh, mm-hmm. for the sake of others, not fearlessness for death so I can get the economy open and, and make money again for myself. Yeah. Oh. I mean, yeah. And these things, fear and death, it all goes back to how money draws us right back to the things that are like foundational to who we are. I mean, fear and death, uh, fear of death, death and fear. Um, one thing I got to do in my previous life, I, I was a chaplain at Duke uh, Hospital, so I got to go to, and the Duke was a trauma center, so there was lots of uh, deaths. 
And when you were on call, you were just simply called to those deathbeds and you kind of had to quickly become some type of spiritual chameleon for whatever was happening in that room and help people with what was happening. And I went to some deaths that were uh, not good, uh, full, full of terror and fear and family was full of terror and fear and denial. Um, but then I went to deaths that were like nothing short of sacred and peaceful. And, and it was a blessing. It was actually people were, as they were grieving, they were being blessed by the person who was dying. Um, that changed my life. And that's not something that I can tell somebody. I can't tell you or you, Matt, or you, the neighbor down the street or the Christian next to me at church. Well, oh, yeah, what you just ought to do is just not be scared of death and this is going to be fine. It's like, well, um, no, but like I pray that maybe I don't live my life scared of death so my kids don't have to be scared of death so that my neighbor might find something different and think, oh, he's, there's not fear in his life. Um, and then when I, I pray, I don't fail at that, but I, I might, you know, I, I might when the day comes, I don't know. Um, but I think if the church really just kept reminding herself over and over and the spirit kept speaking to her that you don't need to be scared. You just do not need to be scared of this thing, death. Um, and believe that and did whatever it, it was called to do, whether that was work and be a part of the economy or to live out the divine economy or to be the best doctor or nurse, whatever it is they're called to be and do and where they are in life. Um, if they did that without fear, I mean, it would draw people, it would draw people, especially scared people mm. in this world um, who are looking for a reason to not be scared and not because we can take death away, even though Jesus does, but it's because there's a promise for life and it's a, it's a life they don't even have right now, even though they're living, right? Like they, it's like they, they think they're alive and they think they have life, but it's a half life because it's gripped by fear and desperation and darkness and doubt. And all of a sudden they brush up against Jesus and the church. And it's like, Oh my God, I thought I was alive. And I'm not, I'm not, this, this, you, this is, a, this is life. I want more of this. And all of a sudden people are tasting freedom and they're tasting life and the fruits of the spirit. And that, I mean, I think it's what the church is always called to do, but these are precious moments the church has to, to, to live that out and people notice it more. Wow. So good. Uh, so basically what we're saying, and when it comes to, I mean, I'm looking at all, I've been writing down all these, these terms that you two have been talking about, uh, market interest savings. Uh, uh, what, what do I have? Uh, threat of power and death. There's so many good things here. It just reminds me of what you said before, uh, that these principles of economy hit every level of our life, supply and demand, value, savings, the value of person, human activity. Uh, you can see why. I mean, what's the first thing that happened when this thing came down was we all went after toilet paper. And while that sounds strange, when I was in Japan about a month or so ago, you know, they were, they were one of the first ones to deal with this. And of course they're dealing with it again now. Uh, but they had a lack of toilet paper too, which is very kind of a strange thing to watch. So I watched it over there and I watched it over here. And, but what you're making, what you're helping me do, Brad, and I help and hope people that are listening is to frame what's going on there. Because it wasn't just a rush. It was a rush for a product that all of a sudden was no longer on the shelf anymore. And I honestly had a buddy of mine who owned Facebook. His name is Scott Smith. He's, we've had a podcast before. He was like, is hoarding a Christian thing? You know, uh, as you're getting your fourth or fifth toilet paper, you know, bag, you're not thinking about the person next to you. And then all of a sudden, this is when the question started kind of rolling in my own head about, you know what? I have to start thinking about these issues like resources in terms of a, a, a Christian way of doing so. And thank you so much for coming on because I think this is fantastic. And what you've reminded me is in the world of scarcity, which we have in this broken world, the reality is there's no scarcity of love, grace, and peace because that in itself is an image of the new kingdom to come where we will be using market principles of saving and 
and and and, and multiplying because I honestly think those principles are things like gravity. Uh, as you know, working in the finance world, there's just ways of doing things the right way with our resources. And if you do it the right way with some with some blessing and with uh, some perseverance, you see the fruits of that stuff because that's the way that God ingrained the world to work. But thank God that we have a, a new heaven and a new earth where there'll be no scarcity when it comes to the major issues of love and grace and peace. And, and hopefully that's something that we can promote as a church. The other thing is individual ethic and the communal ethic is something you said before that I think we need to think about. Uh, my place in this whole in this whole economy of, of people is, is in, the, in my family, in my church, and in the world that I, look, that I work in, in the marketplace, is I am affecting somebody in front of me. And what is humility in, my, in, in the way that I use my finances? What does it look like when I'm looking to others and looking to God? So if I'm looking to God on the Y axis and looking to others on my X axis, my, the way I do my finances and the way I do my money should show the next kingdom. And that's a kingdom of no scarcity. That's a kingdom that's where we're all giving. And uh, thank you so much, Brad, for coming on. We'd love to have you back on. Is there anything final that you would like to say? I would th- just want to thank you both for this conversation. I mean, these things never never stop to convict um, and to give life. And even talking to you guys about it is a reminder of, of um, how important this is for how it affects all of us. So I, I'm just really thankful for the opportunity to come talk to you guys. Amen, amen. Hey, Travis, you got anything? I know that. Thanks for coming, Brad. I've always enjoyed uh, hearing you speak too. I'm, uh, those are great words, and I actually feel encouraged. Yeah, uh, what you said. No doubt. He's not only has he framed it, but Travis, you helped us think about being a hero when it comes to these issues, and and not necessarily looking like like a horror movie. Uh, this is not not in a living dead, right? They would have all lived if they would have banded together, right. uh, you know. But but they didn't, and they all died. So let's look at this story as an opportunity for us as Christians to look to the true hero. And that model of the true hero can give us all a framework to live our life as Jesus Christ. Uh, for those of you who don't know much about Tactical Faith, uh, we're a nonprofit organization that helps to spur on theological and apologetic kind of thinking and reflection uh, in the state of Alabama and beyond. We've been around since 2011. We are a nonprofit 501c3. It's tacticalfaith.com. You can uh, throw us a question at info at tacticalfaith.com or me and Travis. You can throw an email at Travis at tacticalfaith or Matt at tacticalfaith.com. Travis also has his own podcast called Wandering in Wisdom. Uh, It is a fantastic podcast, a part of the Tactical Faith Podcasting Network, and I'm so proud of it. Uh, Thank you so much for you guys listening. Uh, We would love to hear from you, and we will see you next time.